traveling to many countries in the world, and we have met so many wonderful people. I shared with you that we had changed our our address book at least three times as as God was working more and more power, and I got more and more normal. Uh, people uh, were reacting more and more against that, and we have now added hundreds and hundreds of friends around the world. So many wonderful people and in many different cultures and languages. And we have a similar experience. Every time we go somewhere, we go and we, we, we come to a group like this and we give a seminar, first of all, and it looks like the perfect church and has a perfect worship team, the perfect intercessors. Uh, everybody is just perfect. But another part of our ministry is we sit down with people one at a time. And then we hear their stories. And we hear about them not being wanted before birth. We hear about their rotten childhood. And, and we have heard just horrible stories of Martin and Cindy have just horrible story after horrible story of people. And we, we have heard uh, uh, of marriages that are devastated about people who have now reached their 50s and their 60s. And they have realized that the great dreams and the great prophecies that have been uh, they have had, and they have, have been spoken over to them, have not been fulfilled yet. And they wonder, is, is anything going to change? And I seem like I'm always getting healed, but never being healed. And so we listen to all these stories. I was at Asma's place, and we had a lady come in, and she was in her 50s. And this is another one of, of another very, very sad story. As I listened to her, I realized that she was in her 50s, but she was finished. Relationships had not worked out. Children had not come. She was miserable in church. She was miserable at work. And she'd been a Christian for decades. As I sat there, I thought about a play that we saw. I love saying this. A play we saw in London. At the theater. <laughs> and the play is Les Miserables. Les Miserables is, is the story of Valjean. And Valjean was a prisoner who was released and he was taken in by a priest. And the next morning, breakfast was served and as the priest left the room, he grabbed a candlestick and ran. The police caught him, brought him back to the priest's house. And the police addressed the, the, the priest and said, Is this the man that was at your house and did he steal his candlestick? And the, the priest said, No, he didn't steal it. I gave it to him. In fact, I gave him both, but he forgot to take the other one. And so the, the man left, Valjean left, experiencing the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for the first time in Valjean. That's what the story's about. And he becomes a very important man. And he starts helping people, and he becomes a mayor of a city, and he's, he's helping lots of people, but there's an antagonist, uh, a, a, a French policeman who is bound and determined to catch this man. And in the storyline, um, he meets a woman, Fontaine, and, and Fontaine had had an affair, and Cosette was born, and 
very early in the play, Cosette realizes, as Aljan does, that that she's going to be orphaned because her mother Fontaine is dying. And she sings a song. And I thought about that song as I ministered to that woman, so I, I went and got the CD out of our living room and brought it into the ministry room, and I played it for her. I sat there, she weeped, and realized that the song was her life. You see, it's not her life, and maybe your life. Because we all dream dreams. We all believe that things are going to get better, and they don't. Many of us have heard so many prophetic words, and we've wondered, when is anything good going to happen to me? When is ministry going to start happening for me? When am I going to find a place in a church where I'm going to be accepted? And pretty soon life kills the dreams that we have. I want to play this song for you, and I want you to emotionally feel it with your life. Or maybe your husband's life, or your children's lives, your grandchildren's lives, your friends' lives. For you see, the church is filled with people that silently dream dreams. I'm reminded at one of the meetings that, that, were, that I had at our church before we were asked to leave, a person got up in the church and said, we do not want all these hurting people here. But, and they didn't understand that the church is filled with hurting people. But we're afraid to let anybody know because then we'll be rejected again. I dreamed a dream.
through childhood and we grow up, we become teenagers and we think, if I can just move out, if I can just be free of my parents, then everything will be okay. And so we move out. And then 30 days later, the bills start to come. And we're surprised because someone expects that we're now going to pay for those bills. But we dream if we get married, then it's going to be okay. And we get married. I think if I have children, it'll be better. Then we have children. After three or four nights of not sleeping, we think, well, I need to buy a house. So we buy a house. It has to be repaired. And we buy toys, adult toys. They need to be repaired. And we have dreams of what the church should be, what our pastor should be, what our friends should be. And we seem to be crushed continually. So sad. And we wonder, is this what life is really like? I remember seeing a cartoon of our children and a little mouse mouse escapes with his father out of this room and he falls into a trash can and the mouse the little child mouse says to the adult mouse is this what the world is like? and we think that's what the world is like I had the wonderful opportunity of hearing Dean Sherman very early as we were being trained in spiritual warfare and Dean Sherman works for uh, Youth with a Mission he came to our church, and we had like three or four of us there. This man who speaks before hundreds. 
And he made this comment. He says, if you look at all of entertainment, it, it rotates around three things. A great romance, a great adventure, or a great conflict. And I want to tell you that we in the church are involved in the greatest conflict in the universe. We are involved in the greatest adventure in the universe. And we are involved in the greatest romance in the universe. So yes, something can be different. Now the cherubim are here. And because the cherubim are here, and I can feel the heads turning right now. Perhaps some of you can see them. Because the cherubim are here, the Lord wants to do something with us. And it involves a great romance, a great adventure, and a great conflict. Now, the cherubim mentioned in three places, in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10, and Revelation chapter 4. We're only going to look at one passage, Ezekiel chapter 1, because I want you to understand who is here and the implications for the fact that they are here. Because if they're here, there are implications to it. I gave this sermon to a group of five American Baptist churches in the San Diego area. And um, God came in such power, and my friend, Brian Fairley, who's American Baptist pastor, and he's still my friend. He's traveled many times to, with me to Europe. He said, Paul, they were doing really good until you said the cherubim were here. I said, well, they're in the Bible. I said, I know, but it freaked them out. So... I want you to look at what the chairmen are. Chapter 1, verse 4. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. So the cherubim are in the pillar of fire, which is in the cloud of his glory. Okay. So the ignition is hard. Here's a cloud right here. The cloud is here. Here's the fire. Leave right here. Now we're talking about dimensional stuff here. Because these guys are so big, there's no way they can fit in this room. Okay? So the cone. And brightness is all around it and radiating out of it. It's midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. This is a cherubim. A cherub is one. A cherubim is many. So there's four living creatures or cherubim. They're called cherubim in chapter 4. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each had four faces. This is like a great video game. And each had four wings. Now I do not feel the wheels turn. I thought that's what I was originally, but the wheels don't turn. We find this out later. So it must be the heads. I feel them rotating this way. So they have four heads. Their legs are straight, and the sole of their feet were like the, the soles of calves' feet. Incidentally, Lucifer is a cherubim, and that's why you see Satan sometimes pictured with calves' foot, feet, because he has them. They sparkle like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of man were under their wings on their four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, 
but each one went straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. So here are the four faces. The face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. And there's many things we can say about that, but we're not going to. We can imagine how weird this is. Now, I'm not making this up. Some of you don't have your Bibles open and you think, I'm just making this up as I'm going along. No, it's right here. That's what they look like. Now, these were their faces, and their wings stretched upward. Two wings of each one touched one another, and two covered their bodies. And each one went straight forward. Now, you see that there's four of them, somehow like this, and they're all going forward, and they're moving together in unity. And like as the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. Now, we're told later the fire is in the feet. I believe this is where the anointing comes from. Of course, the anointing comes from the Holy Spirit, but I believe that the living creatures have between their feet the fire, and that's the fire that sometimes hits us, the fire that hit me up here. And lightning comes out of it. Can you imagine this? This is pretty spectacular. Now, as they looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces, the appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color barrel, and all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they moved, they went forward in each one of the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. As for their rims, now these wheels have rims. We are told they were high and awesome. Now you do not go outside and look at an automobile wheel and say, Oh! What an awesome wheel that is. Right? Awesome is big. Maybe as big as this room. That's awesome. Okay? Now it's even weirder. And the rims are filled with eyes. You see them all blanking? Isn't that weird? When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them, and when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. When, wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, because there the Spirit went, and the wheels were lifted together with them, for the Spirit of living creature was in the wheels. Now we're told two things, that wherever the Spirit of God goes, they go, but the Spirit of the living creature is where? In the wheels. They're living wheels. When those went, these went, when they stood still, those stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them. For the spirit of living creatures was in the wheels. The likeness of the firmament above their heads, the living creatures, was like the color of awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. Now, on top of the hands of these four living creatures, there is the crystal sea. It does not say the crystal pond. It does not say the crystal lake. It says the crystal sea. What is the nature of a sea? You stand on a sea coast and you look and you cannot see the end of the sea. You see this? No, you can't because it's too big. So these four, therefore they are not six feet high. These are big dudes. I believe they're thousands of feet high if they were, we were to see them in the reality in our third dimension. And they are holding the crystal sea. Well, here we go. Mm. 
Verse 23, And under the firmament their wings spread out straight, one towards another. Each one had two, which covered one side, and each one had two, which covered the other side of the body. And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let their wings down. Now, we're told in one translation that this crystal sea is awesome. And they're flapping their wings. And see, their wings must be really big. You ever seen these Roman movies where you have 10 million soldiers going down a hillside, and there's the 10 million other side, and they're, and yeah, I can't. That's the noise. We stood by uh, Niagara Falls. Noisy. This is the noise of their wings. This is not fly wings. Verse 26, and above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne. Okay, now let's watch this. You have the cloud, the pillar of fire, the four living creatures are in the pillar of fire, and they're that big. How big is the pillar of fire? Because the crystal sea is in the fire. And on the crystal sea there is a throne. The appearance like the sapphire stone or the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. I, I was sharing this in Minnesota just last week, and a, a man gave me a new insight. He said, you know that the nature of a sapphire stone is that when light goes in, it is intensified, I think he said 20 times, and it goes out in many directions. Now, this, I want you to think of that as we finish what's going on here. And on the likeness of the throne was the likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist upward I saw, as it were, the, the color of amber with the appearance of fire around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness. Why was it bright? Okay, now look on. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. I cannot understand this. If his glory, his light, is coming off of him, and it's as intense as possible in his internal everlasting greatness, and it's magnified 20 times greater. And literally, it goes into that sapphire throne, and it comes out laser beams. Now, this is very important because we are told that the Hebrew translation of the glory that came off Moses is his face shot forth beams of light. He was laser-faced. Now, what happens? What happens when the cherubim show up? Three things. There's a message. First of all, before message, there is a movement. You look at chapter 2, verse 1. He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet. We are told in chapter 10 that the Spirit came into Elijah and actually moved him to a different place away from where he was. You see, when the cherubim show up, the glory of God is here. And when the glory of God is here, there is movement. 
We are moved from where we are to where we need to be in our lives, in our marriage, in our family, in our ministry, in our, in our motivations in every single area of life. We are taken from where we are to where we need to be. There's movement. Second of all, there's a message. And so the message is given. And it's given as a scroll. We are, we are told that in uh, chapter 3. A message is given to, to Elijah. And then he's told to go. There's a ministry. You see, the chairman are just not here so that we can talk about the chairman being here. There's something more that's going on. There's movement. There's a message. There's a ministry. Now, this is all going to come together because we're going to practice this. Okay? Let's keep this in your mind. I had a great privilege. I have olive oil everywhere. I had a great privilege in December of 1999. I think it's leaking out of my chin. So I didn't do this, so don't blame me. We were um, called to go to a minister at the Toronto Airport Church, and before we, we came, uh, John Arnott called and asked me if I'd preach in a Sunday evening service, which was terrifying enough. And so we, we got there, and after a day or two, they, we were there for a week before Sunday, and after a couple of days, they said, well, we'd like for you to speak at the Spanish church on Sunday morning. I said, well, we can do that. I've, I've spoken in Argentina and been translated. Then two or three days later, John Arnott called and he says, we are going to combine the English and the Spanish church and like for you to preach Sunday morning. Well, that was enough to terrify me totally. So I had, I had the sermon. I, I feel like God has, has matured the sermon in me. Um, and, and the sermon was on the glory of God. And, and, and very early in, in my, my Baptist days, I preached the book of Exodus. And I came to that passage where Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And, and why he had said that is because, because God was ticked at the people. Because God looked down and says they were sacrificing. Now, it just occurred to me recently, they were sacrificing their children. Because they didn't just sacrifice grain and fruits. They, in that, that culture, you sacrifice babies. Think this. They were sacrificing their babies. And God says, I want you to go down and deal with that. So he goes down there and he sees it and he gets, Moses gets angry. And then God and he have this talk. And God says, now, Moses, what are you going to do with your people? And Moses says, they're not my people, they're your people. And God says, well, then I'm just going to wipe them out. So, well, God, you can't do that. What's going to happen to your name, to your fame? What are people going to think about you? They're going to say, you're the kind of God that brings somebody out of, out of Egypt and then you kill them all? So he starts contending with God. And he lays hold of God, and God is not budging. Until finally, Moses goes for the ultimate prayer. So I preached on this. The ultimate prayer, Lord, show me your glory. Now you think, what does that have to do with what we've just been talking about? And the Lord says, immediately, yes, I will show you my glory. And so he, he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, and his glory passes by, 
And then he starts pronouncing his name. And in his name is, I am a God who forgives and has everlasting patience. And Moses says, see, I told you. And so the Lord proclaimed his name. Moses says, that is your name. I am claiming that. And Moses says, I will go with you and I will keep the covenant. So that, that was a sermon I would preach. And that was a sermon I was going to preach in Toronto. And so I spoke the sermon. And now there's any place where the fire can fall is Toronto. You can sneeze well and you just lay out half the people. <laughs> right? So I got to the end. I said, Lord, release your glory. And I was waiting for the fireworks. Well, there's a little... People start shaking. But then, people all over the place started getting up and laying down on the floor. I'm watching this. Now, you've been in Toronto Church that has a huge uh, uh, front part that's empty and anointing aisles. And pretty soon, I don't know, over a thousand people there maybe, they all started getting up and they started laying down everywhere. And it got really quiet. I thought, no. Now, I have put people to sleep with my sermons before. But I've never been so effective. People just start laying down everywhere. And I, I finally just sat down. So I go down and I sit next to John. And I say, okay, John, I think I'm done. And he's like this. And he doesn't even say anything to me. Well, I just sit there. Fifteen, twenty minutes. There's nothing going on. You can't do that in church. You have to have something going on. Except we're here, of course. And and I went home and I, I, I thought, Lord, you know, every other time I've done this, your fires come and your anointings come. We pray for people and they go flying and we just have a wonderful time and what is this? Well, this is when I got impacted by this guy. Because he sends out a prophecy in January of 2004. Day January 4th. 2002, what did I say, 4? That's being prophetic. Huh? <laughs> what are you going to, you know, <laughs> January January fourth, two thousand and two. And here it is by Mike McClung, and this is the title. Two thousand two, a year of rest, preparation, and breakthrough. Two thousand two, a year of rest, preparation, breakthrough. Two thousand two will begin the entering of the Sabbath rest. The true Lordship of Christ in His resurrection glory is about to be revealed in a most profound manner to those who have pursued intimacy with Him. We now understand that Christ Himself is our Sabbath, and we are to labor to enter into the fullness of His presence and rest. There is a great wave of healing and deliverance coming to the church. Now, it's interesting, He ties this all into the rest. See that? There's a great wave of healing and deliverance coming to the church for the purpose of healing the wounded body of Christ, 
releasing to the harvest. One problem that will rise is that religious people will become very angry and embittered towards those who are pursuing Him in rest. That's true. In entering His rest, you guys will like this, there will be unlimited provision. Unlimited anointing, unlimited love, and intimacy, unlimited authority, and unlimited opportunity. We will begin to see Him in the beauty of His riches, His resurrection, glory, and holiness, and no longer just as He has presented the Gospels in His poverty as the lowly servant. The Shekinah cloud of His presence will be seen resting in places and geographical regions around the world. This will prepare us to come into intimate oneness with Him and His purpose and to be trusted with greater anointing, authority, and responsibility. Now I want to tell you that the cherubim are here. And that the cherubim are here, there is movement. We're going to go somewhere. Some of you have been to uh, Disney World. You sat in those theaters. And you think it's just a normal theater until the whole thing starts moving. We're going to move. I was in um, San Jose area. And I was doing deliverance. There were five of us. And it's just no one of the deliverances that I was doing. And, and I started, and out of my mouth came these words. Now, you have to understand, I did not plan to say these things. Now, you understand this, don't you? <laughs> this comes out. And I said, Lord, take us to the fourth dimension for this deliverance. And all of a sudden, it's like we were all in an elevator, and we started going up. And then the power of God hit this woman, and she started shaking, and we sat there while the Lord did deliverance on her. <laughs> She's like this. And so I'm not needed anymore. So I'm looking around, trying to decide what I'm supposed to do. And then I have this thought. Paul tried to worry about something right now. Now, I want to tell you that I could, receive, could have received the gold medal in worrying in my life. I, I was a great warrior. Not warrior, a warrior. <laughs> I could worry with the best of you. I, I'm sure I could surpass you at any level. And I had some things to worry about. You know, you're living, you have things to worry about. So I'm there, and I'm trying to worry. Oh! I'm not doing this very well. Oh! And I couldn't worry. I thought, what is this place? And so I said to the people that were there, the other four, and I said, try to worry right now. <laughs> and so they, <clears throat> they started laughing, just like you did. And they said, we can't worry. We had gone to another place. Now, I want you to, listen, I want you to follow me now. The Bible says we are seated with Christ in what? In heavenly places. Not a place. The scientific and mathematical name for those places are dimensions. That's biblical. But we're not there all the time. Positionally, we should be there. Positionally, we are there, but in, in our soul and our spirit... We're not always there. 
I told you that there is the cloud, the pillar, the cherubim. I can feel the cherubim. The cloud, I believe it's here. I want to be presumptuous, but I believe it's right here. It's part of the air conditioner. When the cloud is here, something happens. I want to just walk you through, this will be very briefly, about the cloud. Exodus 13, 21. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night a pillar of fire to guide them as light so they could travel by day or night. What happens? You follow the cloud, right? You go where the cloud leads you. Um, there's judgment that takes place in the cloud. We find this, that the children of Israel went ahead, the cloud was behind them, and on the other side were the, the, uh, the, the people of Egypt, and, and judgment fell on them. Exodus 19.9, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their, their trust in you. <clears throat> now listen carefully. There's communication when the cloud comes. We are told that the cloud came over the tent of meeting, right? It's the tent of his presence, the tent of meeting. It was there where Moses talked the Lord. Now, pay attention to this because we're going to do this. The cloud moves, we go with it, and as we travel, we go to a place where there's going to be communication. Communication may be visual, may be auditory, it may be simply in my spirit. Now, I want to say something very carefully. In intimacy and marriage, much is said without being said. That is intimacy. We somehow think we need to yak and talk and talk and talk to have intimacy with the Lord. Sometimes He just wants us to be with Him. Many things happen in this place. Second Chronicles 5, 13-14, the trumpeters and the singers join in unison as one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and other instruments, they raised their voices and praised the Lord and sang, He is good as love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. The glory is in the manifest presence of the cloud, which is the manifest presence of His glory. Matthew 17, 5. When you're still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice in the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. There's a proclamation of who Jesus is, and again you notice there's communication as the cloud comes. And of course in Acts 1, 9, He ascends, what? Into the cloud. It's the same cloud. And one day He's going to come back in that cloud. The cloud of His Shekinah glory. Now, what does this all mean? I want to be very practical here. If the cherubim are here and there's movement and the cloud is here and we follow it, then the Lord wants to move us from where we are to where we need to be. And He wants us to enter into His rest. Ephesians 1 says, The Lord may give you the spirit of wisdom 
and revelation so that you might know him better. Revelation 4.1 says to John, I saw a door open in heaven, and the Lord said, Come up here. I'll tell you, folks, that's not just in the Bible. He wants us to enter into the place of rest. Let me give you some verses. Exodus 33:14. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Psalm 55, 6, I said, Oh, that I had the wings of a dove, I would fly away, and I'd be at rest. Psalm 62, 1, My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. Psalm 62, 5, Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from Him. Psalm 91, 1, I, I had new insight about this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. You see, not everybody dwells there. When you dwell in the place of rest, then we are told we will rest in the shadow of the Almighty and then everything is under our feet. You see, the enemy is only under our feet in the place of rest. You liked that, didn't you? Isaiah thirty fifteen. this is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, and repentance and rest is your salvation and quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Jeremiah 6.16, this is what the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew 11.28-29 Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And finally, let's look at Hebrews chapter 4. Then we're going to travel. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. Verse 9. There remains, therefore, a rest, for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself, now this is the key, has ceased from his works as God did from his. Why is it that we are so frustrated, so unhappy, we are so unfulfilled in our dreams, in our expectations? Why is it that we are so discontent because we have not entered into those kind of ministries that have been prophesied about us, that we have not fulfilled everything that we have been given. It's because we have not entered into His rest. And we are still striving and working to try to make it happen. And we work and we work and we work, and God says to us, why don't you just let go of it and enter into my rest? One of my great favorite sermons is on the prodigal son. And the prodigal son, the father gives the blessing out to both sons at the beginning. The younger son asks for it, but he divides it up, which means technically he's dead. You understand? Because you don't give the inheritance away until you're dead. So you know the story, the, which is really the story of the elder son, but the prodigal son comes back, and, and the father sees him and welcomes him. 
Now, what kind of crazy God is this? He's already given away everything he has. He only has two things left, a ring and a cloak. And he, his son comes back and he gives it to his son. So now, the Father, parentheses, the Heavenly Father, has now given away everything. What kind of crazy God is this? You look at the gods of history, and all the gods of history demand sacrifices of their children, the divine um, flagellation means being yourself, there's all sorts of misery, and this God gives away everything. He's also like some sort of mad used car salesman that comes and says, here, come and take whatever you want. I've already paid for it. You can have it. So now, he kills a calf. Now, I think this is one of the things that ticks off the older son because you see that the inheritance has already been given away, so he's probably killing the older son's calf. So he's, he's ticked about that. And so, he hears, he's out, now get this, he is out in the mission field laboring so hard and working and miserable. But he's working hard and he's religious. He's doing everything. He's working so hard. And he hears somebody having fun. He says, what is that? When I'm working so hard out here and being so good and doing things, everything so perfectly, and so he comes and he hears this party and so he sends a servant in. And he, this, this, this parable is so absurd that it has to be... It has to be hilariously funny to the Jews. They're probably on the ground just laughing because it's so stupid that anything has happened. Because you would never ask your father to come out like that in that society. So the father comes out and the father has a son with the older son and says, no, son, what's your problem? He says, well, they're having fun in there. And I've been slaving away and you haven't given me anything. Now what is this? He got everything at the beginning of the parable. Right? He already has it. He had more inheritance than the younger son had. See that? He had more because he was the older son. Now, what I quote, I want to give credit to a commentator, so I love it. His father turns to him and says, Son, you know, everybody has died in this parable. I died at the beginning of the parable. Now, your brother has died. The calf is dead. Why don't you drop dead and join the party? <laughs> For you see, you see the kingdom of God is a party made up of dead people. <laughs> They're just having a great time enjoying the kingdom of God and a mad God who is so loving that he gives everything away in the kingdom. And then God says to us, now make every effort. There's one thing we need to work at, friends. This is it. We need to work at entering his rest. Why? I heard Heidi Baker, and the Lord was doing the sermon, 
in my soul and I've been giving it. And I heard her talk and she, she helped me understand what was happening. Because you see, she has learned to enter into the rest. And she lives there. This conference is called the Days of His Presence. This is why we're climaxing with us tonight. Steve's still preaching tomorrow. Because you see, everything happens in His rest. It's there where the ideas come. It's there where the strategies come. It's there where the warfare takes place. It's there where ministries are birthed. It's in His presence, in His rest. I do not any longer need to scheme. I do not need to start tape ministries. I do not need to try to raise money for buildings. I don't need to do anything. I just go into His rest and I let Him do it. It's a new way of church. I want to tell you, when God started Aslan's place, everything that has happened significantly since the birthing of Aslan's place, He's done. Don and I are just trying to keep up with what He's doing. And anything I've tried to initiate or start has not worked. And I'm finally getting it. He wants me to be in His rest and just be there and believe Him and enjoy Him and enjoy my wife and my children and my grandchildren, enjoy being with people, enjoy being in love with people, enjoy serving, and then He's going to let it take place. And I don't care whether you're a businessman or a minister, it works. These are going to be new kind of board meetings. In the board, you're going to enter into his rest and you're going to let him speak to you. And you're going to say, oh my goodness, what a wonderful idea. But you see, we're not going to say it's our idea anymore. And Isaiah says, Lord, all that I have done, you have accomplished for me. You understand that every good thought, every good thing that you do is, is his idea. And he lets us look good while he's doing it. Now, there's two ways that you know that you've entered the rest. One is, you can't worry. And the second is, you cannot be jealous of anybody's gifts. Hey, Lord, would you now take us up, here we go, starting to go up, into your rest. We're going up. Heidi Baker said that his pastors would simply get up and lay on the floor and act like a bunch of dead people. And he'd get something done in the church. So I invite you, there's room. Whatever position you want to be in, but enter into his rest. We're still going up. Those of you who can see, look. Those of you who can hear, listen. You might just experience peace. That'd be okay. We're still going up. I just want to be the tour guide of the heavenly places for a little bit. We're going up more. We're still going up. See, we're just entering into an anointed place. Some of you may feel the manifestation of His glory increasing now as we're getting closer to His throne. 
Incidentally, some of you may go to different places because He is God. He will take you where He wants to take you. You're still going up? Some of you may feel pressure on your head, and that's the glory, the anointing. I feel that right now. And now we're turning. I think we're turning towards my left, your right. And now we're going forward again. Now we're going forward for the first time. We've been going up, we've turned around, now we're going forward. I found that it's much easier to enter this place after being there many times. But give yourself a test. Try to worry. <laughs> Try to be jealous of somebody's gifts, of the way they look. I've had people tell me, well, I've been to this place, but I didn't know what it was. It's the place of the Sabbath rest. I'll tell you one more story, and I'll be quiet let you enjoy his presence. I was with a medical doctor and the Lord took us up. He came back later and told me, he said, I was sitting in a lounge chair in a place in, in the heavens. An angel came by like a waiter with a drink for me to drink. And the angel looked at him and said, can't you ever relax? And gave him the drink and walked off smiling. Many people go into a living room with the Lord. Let Him take you where He wants to take you. Enjoy this place of rest. This place is a place of rest, the Holy of Holies, the Tent of Meeting, Mount Zion, the secret place, the place of intimacy, the shelter of the Most High, the Tent of His Presence, 
the mountain of the Lord, the bedchamber, God's bosom, the place of waiting is the higher ground.
Better than 